This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Miss Ruby Wild and Miss Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. Bonjour! And welcome to another episode of Vintage Homicide. I'm your host, Miss Mayday, and today we're going solo since Miss Ruby Wilde is away. I wanted to follow up with an interesting fun fact that came up in discussions with Ruby when we were preparing the Halloween episodes. That topic of discussion was about the casket girls of New Orleans. Given that Mardi Gras is just around the corner, it seems appropriate timing to release this episode. But first, a few disclaimers. Due to Miss Ruby Wilde's absence, there will definitely be a lack of dad jokes in this episode. However, as we are speaking of the French colony and New France, there will be attempts at speaking French, so I apologize in advance. The first part of this story will be the story of how women, specifically indigenous women, African women, French women, and nuns, civilize La Nouvelle Orléans, or is it New Orleans, or maybe... New Orleans? And the second part of the story will be the story of Les Filles à la Cassette, or the Casket Girls, which is interestingly also the story of one of the earliest accounts of vampires in the Big Easy. So let's begin our tale with the history of New Orleans. In 1682, the French claimed what came to be known as Louisiana Territory, or La Louisiane, which was an immense parcel of land named in honor of King Louis XIV. This colony was the second North American colony claimed by the French. The territory stretched from the Hudson Bay in present-day Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, between the Appalachian and Rocky Mountains. Quickly recognizing the possibilities for shipping at the Mississippi Delta, the early settlers from France founded the city of New Orleans 17 years later. However, the first settlers of French Louisiana were explorers, trappers, and traders who established encampments along the lower part of the Mississippi River. The French established three main outposts along the Gulf Coast, Mobile, Biloxi, and later New Orleans. The goal of the immigration policy at that time was known as Frenchification. The policy sought to ally the existing native population with the mother country through missionary activities. Following this strategy, French colonial settlements consisted of small assembly of garrison soldiers, missionary priests, and fur traders known as coureurs de bois, or runners of the woods, and voyageurs, all of whom were surrounded by a large native population. What could possibly go wrong? Despite the necessities of life, soldiers in Louisiana forts either deserted their posts or disbanded to live off the generosity of the indigenous population, specifically the indigenous women. Relations also occurred between the fur traders and the natives. These 
Marriage à la façon du pays, or in the custom of the country, were common between native women in Corriere de Bois and later between native women and voyageurs. These unions were a benefit to both sides. As wives, indigenous women played a key role as translators, guides, and mediators, becoming women between. This is when the necessity of a female presence, preferably French women, became evident to the leaders only after the colony was established. Indian women were attractive to the Europeans because of their domestic skills at creating food, clothing, and shelter from the Louisiana environment. Furthermore, many Native women provided physical comfort to the men through sexual relations. The Jesuits and the upper-level colonial officials viewed these relationships disdainfully and with disgust. French officials preferred Corriere de Bois and Voyageurs to settle around Quebec City and Montreal. They considered the lasting relationships with Native women to be proof of the lawlessness and perversion of the Corriere de Bois. Indigenous women and their effect on the development of Louisiana colony became the focus of much of the early correspondence between the officials in France and Louisiana. This sort of assimilation was not the kind of relationship that the French state desired when it spoke of religious conversion and Frenchification. In Louisiana, interactions with the Indians led to Frenchmen abandoning the colony to live with Indian women. This result was the exact opposite of the purpose of the policy. In addition of the failure of Frenchification, men left their posts to live in sin with uncivilized indigenous women. To find a solution to the potential problem of a colony of French men who converted to Indian ways, Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne de Bionville and other leaders frequently petitioned French administrators during the first years of French settlement. Bionville was a French colonial administrator in New France. He was the younger brother of explorer Pierre Lemoyne d'Iberville. Both were born in Montreal to French colonist parents. Pierre was a French soldier, explorer, colonial administrator, and trader. At 17, Bionville joined his brother d'Iberville on an expedition to establish the colony of Louisiana. Bionville was an early governor of French Louisiana, and oddly he was appointed to this title four separate times during 1701 in 1743. Now back to that French settlement. Colonial politicians sought marriageable girls from France to replace the native women as wives and helpmates. In 1703, Secretary of State of the Navy, Minister of the Marine, Louis II, Philippe de Pontchartrain, granted passage on a ship called Pelican to 20 girls. Fun fact, Lake Pontchartrain in Louisiana was named after him, as well as the historic Hotel Pontchartrain in New Orleans. Try saying that three times. Pontchartrain. He touted the quality and character of the girls who, quote, reared in virtue and piety and who were accustomed to labor and diligence. Pontchartrain hoped that the girls would be useful and that Bionville would ensure their marriage to men capable of supporting them. Bionville and Pontchartrain wanted these 20 girls to marry and settle the French-Canadian men in order that this colony may be firmly established. These French women were needed to transfer French society and culture so that the French men would not desert the colony for the natives. The Pelican left port in 1704 and made a stop in Havana. Unfortunately for the awaiting Louisiana colonists, 
Their prospective brides contracted smallpox or yellow fever while docked in the Caribbean and took the disease to Louisiana with them. The anticipation surrounding these girls to, quote, firmly establish the colony faded as disease ravaged the ship's crew and passengers as well as many Louisiana settlers. Nonetheless, at least 13 Pelican girls still survived. However, Louisiana continued to suffer from a shortage of settlers. By 1716, the Council of Navy recognized the social problems created by French and Native unions and vowed that, quote, marriages of this sort must be prevented as much as possible and girls will be sent from France when it is possible to do so, end quote. The introduction of French girls to marry and settle down with French male settlers became an important goal for the reorganized colonial administration in 1717. Faced with managing the expensive colony, the French government sought out Scottish economist John Law to operate Louisiana and France's colonies throughout the world. In 1717, Law reorganized France's trading companies. The Company of the West merged with the Slave Trading Senegal Company to form the International Company of the Indies. Under this new colonial administration, John Laws's Company of the West took drastic steps to populate the colony between 1717 and 1721. Law was convinced that Louisiana's economic potential could be realized if large numbers of immigrants were sent to the colony to exploit its resources. John Law also made further changes in French colonial administration and returned Bionville as Louisiana's governor. But the most important development of the colony was the relaxation of the Crown's immigration policy. In addition to sending volunteers who wanted to come to Louisiana to start a new life, Law convinced the government to deport thousands of criminals as well. Previously, King Louis XIV had forbidden forced immigration, but when he was faced with a shrinking state treasury, the Crown changed its policy in order to get rid of the costly prison and hospital inmates. So, petty criminals, as well as sick and insane men and women, were now being sent to Louisiana as forced immigrants. The first shiploads of Laws's forced immigrants brought 40 women, mostly salt smugglers, as well as a few notorious criminals. Most of the women convicts sent to Louisiana were accused of theft, violence, debauchery, prostitution, or blasphemy. And another fun fact here is that during this four-year period, more than one half of the women who arrived in Louisiana had been convicted of prostitution, and they were branded on the face with the fleur-de-lis. Five of them became the first French women to reside in Natchitoches. So Natchitoches was the original French colony in Louisiana, and it is currently the oldest settlement in the Louisiana Purchase, and it was established in 1714. Now, back to La Nouvelle-Orléans, or New Orleans. It was founded four years after Natchitoches on May 7, 1718, under the new, but not so new, French Louisiana governor, Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne de Bionville, on land that was inhabited by the Chittimacha. That same year, a hurricane destroyed most of the new city, which was then rebuilt in the grid pattern of today's French Quarter, and the streets were named after lesser royalty in the Duke's court. Almost overnight, New Orleans began to rival Quebec and Montreal as the metropolis of New France. By 1719, 
colonists had experienced 20 years of social and cultural difficulties intermixing with the natives. Once again, French officials planned to send marriageable European girls and peasant families to establish a stable French agrarian society in Louisiana. Now, why would developing a French agrarian society in Louisiana fail? Oh, let me count the ways. The men were not farmers or craftsmen. They were soldiers who struggled to establish a foothold in the Mississippi River Valley. In addition, France was financially unable to provide the necessary tools of the settlement or suitable colonists. Attempts to grow crops did not yield sufficient food. In order to prosper, the colony needed diligent, skilled agricultural workers. Additionally, most of the schemes up to this point involving immigrating European women as life mates to stabilize the colonists and uphold French society had also failed. European women were simply not equipped to deal with the harsh environment of New Orleans. The lack of civil order and the presence of numerous criminals exacerbated the instability of early Louisiana society. Life for a reputable European woman in the new colony was unfathomable and difficult to say the least. So desperate times call for desperate measures. By 1722, the French government could not find enough suitable women to move to the colony and thus female prison inmates, orphans, and mental patients were frequently selected to be sent to North America for Louisiana bachelors. Fun fact, at this time in 1722, New Orleans was made Louisiana's capital, so it was moved from Biloxi, Mississippi, which had been the original capital. Now back to the new solution. Remember the new management? John Law and the Company of the West had merged with the slave-trading Senegal Company to form the International Company of the Indies. Whites could not and would not work the land, especially during the deadly hot season. Because the French soldiers were unwilling and unprepared to clear and cultivate the land, the settlers demanded black slaves to turn the swampland into productive soil. And as the indigenous population decreased due to disease and war, and too few agricultural workers came from Europe, the need for African men and women became evident. The largest groups of slaves came to Louisiana's ports between 1719 and 1721, when eight slave ships carried a total of 1,900 slaves. In all, slave ships brought almost 6,000 African people to work in the French colony between 1719 and 1731. African women were part of the slave cargo that was brought to Louisiana. Their knowledge of agriculture and tolerance of hard work in the fields made them invaluable to the colonists. Louisiana settlers found that the Africans from Senegal, particularly the Bambara people, well suited to farming the Mississippi River Valley. The Bambaras came from the fertile soil of natural prairies along the Senegal River, similar to Louisiana, where they worked the fields to grow rice, corn, tobacco, indigo, and cotton. Traditionally, Bambara women were skilled farmers, providing their families with much of their food. They cultivated tobacco and grew grains such as rice, corn, and millet. In addition to farming, the Bambaras were skilled cattlewomen. They successfully raised sheep, fowl, and cattle in Africa, and then subsequently in Louisiana. The women also made couscous and prepared other food and drink. Furthermore, Bambaran women were responsible for clothing their families. They spun cotton, dyed the thread, and made clothes. The women also maintained their homes, cared for the animals, 
collected the wood for fires, and hauled the water. All of these essential skills were lacking in Louisiana's white population, thus making African women very necessary to the establishment and success of the colony. Without the Bambara knowledge of converting swamps to rice paddies, the Europeans probably would have starved and the colony would have failed. However, colonial leaders on both sides of the Atlantic did not want to repeat the social problems the colony had encountered earlier with Frenchmen deserting to live with indigenous female slaves and taking them as concubines or wives. To avoid the potential problems of African-French intermarriage, progeny, and its effects on the establishment of permanent French settlements, the Council of the Navy invoked the Code Noir, or the Black Code. Written in 1685, this regulation was a paternalistic document aimed at the maintenance of French social hierarchy in France. The Black Code expected slaves to submit to the orders of their master, who governed all members of his family and household. Initially, the code was intended to be a series of bureaucratic measures to maintain social order in France and to maintain the centralization of power in the monarchy. So when the Superior Council in Louisiana enacted the Black Code in 1724, they sought to impose this same 17th century French social order and hierarchy upon their settlement of unruly misfits. Additionally, what better way to bolster the Black Code to uphold French social order and impose hierarchy upon the burgeoning colony than some good old-fashioned Catholic indoctrination? In 1727, the Jesuits and the Ursuline sisters arrived in strength. Among the first arrivals were six Ursuline nuns. So Bionville imported from France a shipload of new marriageable girls who at this time were chaperoned by those nuns until satisfactory mates could be found. The Kingdom of France sent more girls to marry to French Louisiana. Many of them were currently orphans raised by nuns in France, but also poor girls who had been locked up in La Salpatrière in Paris. They were provided with a trousseau in the form of a wooden chest or cassette, meaning little box, which included two pairs of clothes, two skirts and petticoats, six corsets, six chemises, six headgear, and all other necessary supplies. They were collectively called les filles à la cassette, or daughters of the cassette, because the cassette was also the name given to the royal treasure. These girls from the cassette were similar to the dowry of the Fils de Roy, who had come before them to populate New France between 1663 and 1673, as a part of the first program financially supported by King Louis XIV. The casket girls got their name from the trunks like this one, which were used to transport their belongings to Louisiana Colony. They were only nine and a half inches high, 22 and a half inches long, and 10 inches wide. These trunks did not give the women much room to pack everything that would be needed to start a new life. In 1728, when the ship arrived in New Orleans, it included 88 eligible young women. The youngest was only 12 years old, but she had been a sex worker in Paris since the age of six. These girls and young women were then placed with the nuns at the Ursuline convent until they could be married to colonialists. The voyageurs and the coureurs de bois, literally runners of the wood, hunters and fur trappers, flocked down the river to vie for their hands. Fun fact, 
The Ursulines were dedicated to education and opened the colony's first school for girls and later operated Louisiana's first charity hospital. Today, the Ursulines are still active in New Orleans, and several schools can trace their origins to the nuns. St. Mary's Catholic Church is currently located on the site of the original Ursuline convent. Here begins the strange tale of how Le Fille à la Cassette become known as the Casket Girls. But you'll have to wait for the next episode of Vintage Homicide. I've been your hostess, Miss Mayday, signing off. À la prochaine. Vintage Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery.